think we really kind of need to unpack some of our own traumas and difficulties in our culture before we go about trying to figure out how to help others. Because I think to be the best versions of ourselves to help other people, we really need to help hone our own prejudices and, and challenges to begin with. Hi, and welcome to another episode of South Asian Stories. I'm your host, Samir Desai. In this episode, I have the honor of chatting with Dr. Sana Sheikh. Sana is currently the Director of School Operations for Springfield Public Schools. She's also the founder of her diversity, equity, and inclusion company called TIMED, which stands for Taking Initiative, Making Equity in Education. Sana is passionate about anti-racism and equity and has over 10 years of experience working in education policy, research, and program management and operations. Sana was also a 2011 Teach for America core member where she taught high school in East Baltimore for two years. In this conversation, we discuss quite a bit, including Sana reading her dad's emails at eight years old as she prepped to attend Harvard University, and there's the moment Sana realized she was a boring teacher and had to rethink her model of teaching, and finally, how to approach systemic racism in education when you're talking with your own South Asian parents. This interview was eye-opening for me and helped me understand the underlying issues that apply to race and education. So please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sana Sheikh and her story, Fighting for Educational Equity. Sana, welcome to South Asian Stories. We're so, so excited to have you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. We are uh, on a Friday morning and, uh, you know, we were, we were just talking, uh, you know, Sana just came out from the outside where it was cold outside. We had some tough weather two weeks ago here in Texas, but um, we are through it and we're, we're excited to chat all things about Sana's life, uh, you know, how she grew up uh, and, uh, you know, where she is today. So let's start way at the beginning, Sana. And can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? What was it like growing up and how South Asian was your family? Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, So I grew up abroad. I grew up in Pakistan and I was around seven when I came to California. So I very much consider myself uh, a bit of two worlds, uh, Californian, Pakistani, Californian specifically because, you know, our country is so diverse. So definitely a West Coaster here. And my family was very progressive, I want to say. So I'm the oldest of three. Um, I have a younger sister. She's three years younger and a brother who's 10 years younger. And um, my dad went to school at Davis and Zach State. He's an engineer. And my mom got her math degree at the University of Punjab. So she was a kind of a, a math uh, connoisseur, but she loves education. She's been in education her whole life. So we grew up in California. Uh, suburbs of California, Northern California. We actually grew up in an extended family system. So uh, my parents are very progressive in the sense of really wanting their kids to flourish. But uh, we definitely had our Pakistani anchor of, you know, respect and (laughs) values and basiness through and through. So I grew up speaking Urdu um, and uh, we really didn't speak English much in the house. And my grandmother lived with us, my paternal uncle and aunt. And the five of us. So definitely like Hamsat Sate, California version, Love you know? It. Love it. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, but we were, it was different, right? Like we, we grew up in Northern California, but we were Daisy and we were immigrants. So growing up, you're still trying to figure yourself out. Definitely had an accent. Definitely was socially awkward. Like all the, <laughs> what makes us who we are in our pre teenage years. So, uh I feel very privileged for my childhood. It was very safe, very secure, and uh, very grateful to kind of get the core of family authenticity and love, like to kind of give you the confidence to be who you are. Yeah, very cool. Um, You know, I think it's really interesting that growing up in Pakistan, moving to the States, did you struggle at all, Sana, with identity of like, am I Pakistani? Am I American? Am I Pakistani-American? How did you develop that as you grew up? Oh my gosh, Samir, that's like my life story. Like, am I, you know, am I Desi? Am I American? Am I Californian? I'm, you know, trying to figure out who you are, I think is such a journey. And 
Um, I think that journey was really catapulted. I went to UC Berkeley for my undergrad and um, that was kind of the first time I saw people that looked like me. And so my initial thought process was, we're all Desi, we're all Pakistani Americans. Most of my colleagues and friends grew up in the Silicon Valley. So I was like, you know, we, we have these anchors that connect us, that give us like camaraderie, but there's so much differences within our community, right? Like in college, everyone's trying to figure themselves out. Um, and there's a spectrum, right? Like there's folks who, you know, love to party and I'm an old lady internally. So that never was my thing. Um, and then there are people who really get um, into faith and culture and then do all of our like Desi dances, right? Getting into Bollywood. So um, I think for me, it's it's definitely been a journey trying to figure out where I fit in. And I think as got gotten older, I've stopped trying to fit in. I think at this point, I don't even associate myself as being too Desi or too American. I'm just Sana. And friends of mine who accept that, accept that part of me um, are um, are my family. And I think that as you go older, you start, you stop becoming so apologetic, right? I think right. also in our culture, it's so much like, you know, we are, we don't want to get too much noise around us. Like we want to make sure we follow the cultural expectations of, you know, respect and follow through. And I think that uh, we kind of, as like the millennial, the older millennial, Daisy generation have to carve out what our identity looks like now, yeah. especially for us who are like first and second generation. That's exactly right. And, and I think, um, you know, as you get older, the focus on that becomes more apparent. Like as you get inputs from your friends and their experiences, like you, you get input from your classmates who have different experiences, non-Daisy, non-Asian, you know, you know, African American. And it's like, I feel my identity has become more into focus the more I get older. Um, and I want to talk about like when you were growing up, um, the other part of identity for us South Asians is career. And like, you see what your parents do, would see what people in your community do. Did you, did you know what you wanted to do growing up? And how did that change as you got older? Cause I was looking at your background. Yeah. I feel you have the more degrees than like my whole family combined. Like, um, like how, how did you, how did you determine what you wanted to do? Well, that's actually very kind of you. Um, I think I'm on the firm belief very undesy of me that your degrees don't matter actually. Like it's really, you know, you could be so street smart without any degrees. So, and so I think for me, I grew up in a really affluent neighborhood in Northern California. So um, people just had a lot of wealth and in California style, I guess it, the wealth was very evident, like people had nice cars, big houses. And so for me growing up and seeing that, I felt like it was something I could reach. So from the very beginning, I knew I wanted to be successful. Like that was something that was, that's embedded in the core of who I am. And as I've gotten older, my barometers of what that success looks like has changed. So when I was younger, it was really just about the bottom line, like the money, right? Like how, what is the income? What is the wealth? And, and I think so much in Desi culture, right? Like that is such a huge value add, like where you are socially. Uh, and I think, you know, we can have a conversation as to like how toxic that can be, but yeah. that, you know, that is part of our culture, right? Yeah. What is his background? Right, right, you know? right, right. So very important with your bio data, like there's layers to that. Um, and I think from the very beginning, my dad he was like a huge proponent of education. We came to America for education. So when I was younger, my dad used to be like, you know, you're going to Harvard. Like it was just such a normal, like, let's eat breakfast. How are you? Sana's going to Harvard. Like that was just a part and parcel of my career. And I think um, also when I was younger, like these are the memories I remember, like I was eight years old and my dad used to have me like read his emails and he's an IT mind you. So, you know, he is, he's also a learned guy, but I'm having the confidence like, oh, I'm eight years old and I can be an editor. So I think it's like a combination of different factors there, but I'm in education. So I am not a doctor in the uh, traditional sense, right? Like I'm a PhD, but I'm not an MD or a PharmD. And um, I am not an engineer and I'm not a lawyer. So I think that for me, as I was growing up, I was really trying to navigate like, yes, for me, success looks like the metrics that our families tell us, but like, what are areas that I'm super passionate about? And I think that passion is what has led me to education. That is wonderful. And that is why 
We love talking to people like you because the whole point of the podcast is to say, hey, there are other things and there's other people like you out there that people who are in our community just don't see that. And they say, if I can see someone doing that and blazing the trail, I can do that as well. So just, I just want to say thank you for, for doing, for, for doing something that you love and helping our community see that it, it's a, it's a viable path and something you're passionate about. And so, um, I, I want to touch a little bit about the, the going back to the journey. So let's say you're you're a senior in college, right? And your dad has been telling you, "Hey, Harvard or, or bust." How did you make it the decision then of like where to apply? What am I going to do? Knowing that pressure and that expectation was hanging above you. I think that for for many Daisy kids, and I would still call myself a kid, right? Like senior senior in college, you're still a child, still figuring yes. things, right? Yeah. I think for me, I always had this very intense desire and expectation that I had to be something. And so the pressure was very real, right? Like it wasn't just I was lackadaisically like picking sunflowers and, you know, walking over the Golden Gate Bridge. None of that. I was always kind of a hustler. So um, I was um, chatting with my college and career coach. I was doing networking events. Um, I was going to a lot of informational interviews, had done applications to go abroad, potentially um, was maybe thinking of the Peace Corps. So really thinking of like different avenues about how I'm going to get to where I want to get to. And so at that point in time, it's, it was also very difficult because um, earlier in my college journey, the economic recession had happened. So mm-hmm. a lot of the jobs and a lot of the funding dried up. So here we are, you know, seniors at college trying to figure out our lives and opportunities aren't even there. So the anxiety is definitely mounting. I actually learned about Teach for America through someone who referred me. So there was a recruiter at our school at Cal. She was like, so-and-so referred you to me to kind of have a chat about Teach for America. Will you talk to me for 10 minutes? And the 10 minute conversation lasted for an hour. And I was like, this is very interesting. Like, you know, having the opportunity to make an impact on kids' lives who looked like me, who had less opportunities than I did. And the program also allowed core members to get their master's. So you got your master's at Hopkins or UPenn um, at a prorated rate, which of course was an indicator in my mind. And then you're doing something that's oriented to social justice, making a difference. So it honestly was like the stars aligned and it fell in my lap and I was like, let's do this. That's awesome. Yeah. Teach for America is just a phenomenal program. And I've had a few friends do it. Tell us about the highlights. Tell us about the, even the lowlights of your experience teaching two years. Um, what's it like to be an educator at the front lines? Yeah, it's very difficult. I feel like I really feel at my core, the two hardest jobs are mothers and teachers Um, and fathers are important too. (laughs) Mothers are the anchor. Um, So it was very difficult. You know, you're 21 years old, right? And you think that you know it all. You have this degree in your hand, right? And you have 21 years of experience under your belt. And here you are going to change the world. And I think it's a very rude awakening because you're often tasked to be in spaces where kids rightfully so haven't trusted their educators because they've had such difficult experiences just navigating life. So I went for, I went from the Silicon Valley where there's a lot of privilege, a lot of power, right? Um, A lot of very specific type of AC people, like very high in terms of achievement, high in terms of networking, right? Like there's a, there's a special type out there, which I love because those are my friends. So, you know, there's there's no shade there, but going from there to Baltimore, where there has been an insidious entrapment of racism, kids don't have access to healthcare, they don't have access to a safe way of living. Like, like kids of mine had their friends pass away in front of them because of like the the violence, the gunshots, mm-hmm. or had really negative experiences with police, and those were their real lived experiences. So. All of a sudden, here I am, like this chipper 21-year-old from Cal, and they're like, who are you again? And so I think that that reckoning is tough because you're then, it's up to you then to either fight or 
leave, right? Like in fighting in the sense of like fighting your own beliefs of like, can you do this? And are you willing to learn and be humble? Because you you have a very difficult moment where you have to learn to be humble and reflect like, what are things that you're not good at? And the thing with being a teacher, it's not simply like, you know, you study for a test, you get an A. Like being a teacher really requires you to like connect with your kids, be good at speaking, be good at like thinking strategically in the moment, pivoting, then there's an interruption, then you have to go into a teachable moment. So you are having constant thoughts in the moment being an educator. So definitely a very difficult job, such a beautiful job because you're changing the lives of kids, but my hat goes out, tips to teachers everywhere. They work really hard for what they do. Um, And I think for me, um, in terms of really kind of uh, the changing point was when I realized like, you know, my, my narrative was based on what I saw in Pakistan, what I saw in California. And I didn't really see what other experiences of people who are brown and black in the country look like, right? Like I went from a very privileged white enclave in Northern California to a very privileged Desi enclave at Berkeley. And I, I didn't really know what it meant to be black in America didn't know what it meant to be Latinx in America. So here I am like face-to-face, like looking at kids who I may have had biases about, who I may have had misinterpretations about, what I see in the media, what I see in music, and like hearing their stories and like caring about them as people because they were my kids. And so I think there is a level of just like, wow, there's, it's it's such more deeper than just me and my bubble. And like, how can I continue to be in a space where, kids who don't have a voice and who are so smart, like should get the choices they need to live their lives. Um, And I think that through all the spaces I've been, you know, I've been at Berkeley, I've been at Hopkins, Brandeis at Harvard, the smartest people I found were in Baltimore city, hands down. Really? That's great. Wow. That is powerful, Sana. And like, I have so many questions and I want to start from what you said a little bit before uh, about humility and gaining the humility. Was there any stories that you can remember in your two years there that provided you that humility that, that, that was like an eye-opening experience for you? Oh my gosh, Samir, if you had come to my classroom my first year, (laughs) there was my, so there was a class I had right after lunch and it was lunch. So kids were getting a little bit more, you know, like let's, let's, let's have a little bit more energy now. Right. It was a class of 35 kids. The capacity was 25. So here we are, 11th graders and some 12th graders, English class with Miss Naeem, because that was my maiden name at the time. And the class was just chaos. And I just attribute that to myself and my teaching. So at Berkeley, how we learned, right, was we had a lecturer, right, a professor, very smart, come on stage. There's these massive classes 300, 400, 500 kids. And we just sit and we just take notes and we just kind of like fangirl over how smart our professors are and (laughs) how just amazing and smart we're becoming. So I was like, you know, I want to take the tools that I've learned, like what I saw at Cal, go to Baltimore City, do my classrooms the exact same way. And my kids are just going to fall in love with me. And that was not the case. (laughs) Check. That was definitely not the case. Yeah. Or just like, you know, misname, like, you're boring. And I was really offended because like, I, I'm shocked. Come on. I, I am shocked. Like, how can you say that I'm boring? Like, <laughs> I, like, and I think that's just, you know, maybe I was quite frankly, maybe I was because that was not how the kids were felt engaged. That was not an engaging way. So my journey over the, the two years in Baltimore was like, what do I need to do to be an engaging teacher? And engagement requires activities. It requires like connecting with topics that are interesting for the kids, getting to know their stories. Who are they as people, right? Like what do they they like to eat? Where do they go for fun? And constantly being at all the basketball games, basketball was a huge sport at our school and just being there outside of the eight to four to see that they like, you know, Miss Name does other things. She doesn't live in her classroom the whole day. And that was like a huge pill of humility that I had to definitely swallow because you are completely recraft, recrafting and recalibrating who you think you are as a person, right? Yeah. So 
I think it's so interesting because now we're having all these conversations about what does student-centered learning mean? What does culturally responsive teaching and equity mean and diversity mean? And I think ultimately in a classroom at the end of the day, you have to listen to the kids. You have to listen to their parents and their families. And you have to listen when they're giving you feedback. You can't just say that, oh, because I have so-and-so friend or so-and-so degree, I know more. Um, And I think that that those lessons of humility have like carried me throughout my life. Like, I don't know, even for you, like what you think is a value add, right? Maybe for Daisy's in California at that time, a degree was or wealth or status, maybe that was what it was, but people are moved through different things. So if you figure out what moves people and you can reflect in that audience, like you can really do anything. Yeah. Wow. That That is... I can just imagine you, uh, you know, in that classroom, be like, "Wow, I need to change things." Like after after that, so um, you know, from from where you started to where you went, how did you feel you changed the most in that experience, both personally and professionally? I think I take a pause before I assume. I think so many of us, right? Like we look at someone who is, they see in their thirties with glasses, Samir, I'm not talking about you, but you know, just in general, like, <laughs> you see someone, you make constant judgments about what you think their story is, right? Mm-hmm. I look at you, I'm going to assume what you need based on how you look like. And I think that's really dangerous. And maybe when you're 21 years old and figuring out the world, you're leaning onto those ways of looking at the world, like the heuristics or the stereotypes, But if you continue to do that, like you're going to have a really difficult life because people's stories are so unique and powerful and you get to know so much just by asking them. So, you know, for me, like how I connect with people is learning their stories, like asking their why, asking what their thoughts are, but feeling and being engaged. But if you step back and you just assume, then that just shows that you're like disengaged and not interested. And so I think that that was a really big lesson in my life. Like, not to assume people and their intent or their stories and always push myself to, to navigate those conversations by being like, you know, who are you? Like, tell me about yourself. Yeah. That is so powerful. And that's honestly, um, you know, again, a genesis of this podcast is stories in the title, right? Because everyone you meet has a story similar and, and, and like from the outside, but the inside and their, their background can be so different. And I think taking the time to ask the questions, like you said, the why, asking the what, where did you come from? Tell us, tell me about yourself. Just bonds people closer because, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head is our community can sometimes be very quick to judge, very quick to judge on a very base layer of things, you know, what they look like, their education, you know, their family background and boom you they know who the person is but that's not the case and it gets even worse when you go outside the community when you when you said latinx black communities it's like the preconceived notions sometimes i really struggle with and um and and i'm glad that that the more you you have these kind of experiences and the more people like you have your voice heard the more the more our, our community can open up so that's that's wonderful um so you're getting to the end of your experience at Teach for America. How did you decide what to do next after that? I think my life is so much about serendipity, right? I think we think about where we want to be, right? And we think about where we're going to go and how we're going to get there. And like life takes us a completely different route. So I had a fellowship working with Senator Mike Johnston in Denver. It was supposed to be like a two month, six to eight week type of gig, um, learning about policy, getting people together who are, educational leaders and then them taking their learnings to go back into the classroom. And that was what I was aiming to do. I was like, I'm going to Denver for a few weeks. I'll be back. Uh, When I was in Denver, uh, there was a position that opened up within Teach for America to be on staff to help teach and coach core members. Um, And literally the job fell in my lap. I had a friend who was like, you know, you're going to be great at this. You know, you really get energy from coaching and people and I really think you should look into it. I went and did the job interview. And I got the job the next day. So wow. my plan of moving back to Baltimore never happened. Um, I called my roommate at the time, Netta, um, who's one of my best friends. And I was just like, sorry, Nettie, like I'm going back to Denver now. 
and I um, had all my bags. I went back to Baltimore, got all my bags, packed everything, moved to Denver the next week. So it's just that it was crazy. Like, I just think, you know, you know, to our earlier conversations about life, right? Like there, there are so many things outside our life that we can't control. And I think we have this, this feeling or thought process, we can control things in our own life too, right? Like if, if we work hard, the quintessential Desi mentality, if we work hard, if we, if we do the right steps, if we respect our parents, because that is a critical lever, um, if we do the internships, we'll get the job and we will be successful, eventually get married, have kids, live happily ever after. But so many of the factors in our own life, we can't control. Like we think we can, but we can't. So I think that my professional journey has just taken me throughout the country and the world. And in so many moments, I wasn't even looking for a position. It just kind of popped up. I got it. And then that was history. That that hustler mindset still continues from, from early age. That's awesome. <laughs> oh my gosh, Samir, always, always, always. The hustle yeah. will never end. You know, That's the right. grind will never end. I love that. Um, so talk to me about this. Um, you know, you were an educator on the front lines. You moved to coaching, you know, the front lines as as a, as a, as, a, as a you know in your new position. Tell us where you feel education education policy is going because my 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 hypothesis is a lot of people listening hear the word education policy and they're like ah it's kind of ethereal i don't really know exactly what that means can you can you dumb it down can you explain to us what your version of is if someone is like okay what are we what are you what are you pushing on and, and what do you think it's going that's a great question i think that um yeah that's a great question even now i feel like for me what i'm really passionate about in the education space is how are we making equitable outcomes for kids in low-income, underprivileged communities? So I'm very much interested in urban education, right? So COVID has completely shaken up what education looks like. But I think at the end of the day, all kids deserve the right to be in spaces where they're valued or their voice is heard, and they're just not a name or a number. So education policy is like all-encompassing in the sense like, what types of curriculum are you teaching these kids? Are Is there a curriculum where people look like them in the curriculum? Are they being taught Black history? Are they being taught Latinx history? Are they being taught by teachers who look like them, right? Like, we we need those communities and networks to succeed. And so it's, it's grossly unfair that there's classrooms where they're, you know, people who, you know, like how I started, 21, 22 years old, you're a white teacher teaching a group of kids, you're, you don't know how to teach, they're struggling. And then there's like the cycle of poverty and, and, and negative outcomes all over again. And so the work that I currently do, I'm the director of school operations. I work at a Title I high school um, and I really kind of own all of the systems and structures that make the school efficient. And, and how are we creating these really transparent, equitable processes to help kids do what they need to do, which is learn, right? Um, and so when I think about like, where do I want to go in the next like 10, 20 years? I really want to be a national thought leader in education about what are we doing policy-wise, whether it comes to funding, whether it comes to support, whether it comes to like putting different ideas on the agenda legislatively to really kind of give urban ed students and this space the kind of facelift that it needs to be innovative, rise to the challenge and help these kids get the education that they deserve. That is incredible. And I think it's one of those things that it's systematic, systemic, where if you need to solve the base issues for it to ladder up into like broader change, and it's not something that you can fix in six months, but if you pull a platform together, education policy platform, you can have long-term effects for wide swaths of communities, like the urban communities that you said. Um, so what do you think... Like, you, you know, you said, you, you know, you have ideas and things that we can do to change. What are those? And can you share um, why do you think they'll work? I think from just a basic level, from folks even who aren't educators, I think I'm making a huge leap of uh, assumption here, but I'm assuming that there's definitely educators who are listening, but who are also like doctors, lawyers, engineers, right? Like different different folks who are uh, embedded into education day to day, but really see the value in it. I think for for a lay for lay people, it's so important to think through how can we maximize impact on people who don't look like us but who need our help. 
because education is not just a standalone issue. It's not simply like, oh, there's teachers over there teaching those kids in those classrooms, but my children are in a private school. They're not affected. A lot of the systemic problems are all interwined, like in urban ed, right? There's kids who don't have adequate health access. They, they don't know when their next meal is coming from, where it's coming from. They don't have a community to lean into. Like they don't know how to navigate that. And there's a lot of folks who have the resources or the bandwidth or the ability to kind of come in and work in tandem with the community and the community's needs. I, I mean, I think ultimately we're really all in this together. We're, we're all kind of impacted by what we're doing in, in classrooms. Like these kids are our future. Like our kids are our future, right? And so I think that um, if we really lean into figuring out how we can make an incremental change on our own and how we can partner with communities to help them feel empowered and make decisions that they want, I think is really important. Like I, I, I can't speak on behalf of what other people want, but I can have conversations with them, ask them what they need and ask them how I can help them in the process. And I feel like a lot of folks who are listening have those resources, have that capability uh, and really kind of leaning into doing that. I think, it, you know, there, there's no words that can define how powerful that can be. Yeah, that, that, that's so true. And I think sometimes people, um, many people have good intentions that they want to help, but they don't know where to start or like, what's the tiny step that I can make to help in this space? What would you say to those people, me included, of like, I want to, the space is something I'm passionate about. What do I do as my first step? I've given so much thought to that, right? Like being basy, right? Like I think about that all the time. Yeah. You know, I think about conversations we have with like our bua, right? Or yeah. right at the dinner table, you know, and it's just oftentimes like I feel like it's like a safe space at the table inside the house and then there's everything outside, right? Right. right. So I think in those, I think in those moments, I think we really kind of need to unpack some of our own traumas and difficulties in our culture before we go about trying to figure out how to help others. Because mm -hmm. I think to be the best versions of ourselves to help other people, we really need to help hone our own prejudices and, and challenges to begin with, right? Like, I think that, and I say this with like a lot of love and respect, like I will always be Desi American, you know, I'm always Pakistani American, but for our community to get better, we need to realize where we can grow. Um, and there's a lot of cultural baggage that comes with you know, your skin tone and like what that means and like navigating the world like that or what your status and what that means and navigating the world like that. And just thinking through like how our biases affect how we treat others in our community alone before we go out venturing to change the larger systemic issues in education. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is, that is so true um, because it's, it, it reminds me of a quote is, you can't help other people until you help yourself. Like you can be the best version. Uh, you, other people can't get value from you if you're not in, in a great place or your family's not in a great place. So let's let's do a, uh, a role play. You and I are at the dinner table together, you know, over a nice uh, dinner of biryani, and this topic comes up. What would what would what what do you recommend bringing up? to my cha-cha or, or bua about this that will really get the conversation in a good place. Any advice around that? I think a really great conversation starter is like, what do you value for your own children? Okay. You know, or, you know, if you could go back in time, like what would you change in terms of the type of education you provided to your kids? And I think that when we center the conversation with ourselves being the center, right? And if we center ourselves thinking through like, what could we have control over if we could? I think that really kind of speaks to challenges that we could mitigate for future generations. Mm. And I say that because I'm a mother of two small children. Um, I have twins. They're both almost three. Congratulations. Thank you. Our, our, I mean, it's quiet right now, but our lives are completely chaotic. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I look at them and, you know, I think about, how I, how I grew up and the, the kind of pressures I had to really be the best or be successful or, or, and those pressures never go away, right? Like they'll always be embedded in our DNA and in our core. So when mm -hmm. 
sitting after an 18 hour day and I have 15 minutes, I'm like, oh my gosh, am I supposed to be doing something right now? Right. Um, and I think a lot of, of my colleagues and overachievers attest to that. Like it's a gift and a curse in many yeah. ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I think about like what I want for my own children, like, you know, 18 years from now, like, do I want them to really fixate on success? And my answer would be no. Like, you know, my husband and I have this conversation all the time. Like my husband is a farm DMBA. So he actually beats me on the degree front. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, we talk about like, what are our, our visions for our children? And it's like, we want them to be well-adjusted. Like we want them to have empathy for others, them to feel content in who they are. You know, we want them to be happy. And, you know, if that happiness makes them want to be an entrepreneur or an artist or a teacher, that's what they're going to be. And they're not going to have to have um, a lawyer or a doctor unless they want to, right? Unless they, that, that's what yeah. makes them passionate. And I, jo- I, I still joke though, because I am Daisy and I'm like, yes, you can be an entrepreneur, but you need to have a doctorate first. But I joke, that's very tongue in cheek. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think that's like so important, right? Like we're going to, we're going to value our kids no matter what they do. And I think that's the American in me that that's, yeah. that's definitely where the hybrid identity comes in because um, whoever they choose to marry or be with or live their lives, like if they're good people intrinsically, like I will support them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think when we are at the dinner table eating biryani and lamb korma, you know, and a little bit of gajar kahava. Yeah. Like, you know, our parents did their absolute best to raise us. They really did. Our families did. Yeah. You know, I think we're very, I feel very blessed to be Desi because there is a, a love in our communities that is really beautiful. Yeah. But I think that, you know, you can always reflect on what could be better. And when you use that reflection and and you utilize that lens for education today, I really think that we can transform outcomes for our future kids. I I could not agree more. And I, it's funny you had that conversation with your husband because my wife and I talk about it too, is, you know, we are who we are because of our parents and right. And they are who they are, their parents, but we don't have to be our parents. Like we, like we can be our own version of ourselves. It's like it's whatever I am, whatever my wife's are, that's the hybrid of two. And then we can make the, those decisions for our kids and, and, you know, our, our future generations. So, like that's powerful to me because you, you, you the buck can stop with you. Where if you want to make a change, if you want to make a pivot of, of how your kids view the world, how they grow up, what sensitivities they have, being empathetic beings, you can make that change, right? And that sometimes people, I think, just give up. Oh, this is how it's always is. This is how my family is. And I think that's kind of short-minded. It's myopic. And and I, I love that, you know, you t- you're taking that with your own kids, you know, in your core, you know, family unit and how that expands out. Um, and one of the things I, I want to ask you about, Sana, is optimism. And like, you know, how, where are you, you know, thinking on the optimistic side, how do you feel about where education, education policy going, whether in how you approach it with your kids or outside of it, you know, of, you know, in, in other communities, what are you optimistic about, but where, where things are going? I think that the recent conversations regarding Black Lives Matter has been really heartening, honestly, Um, because I feel like we're finally kind of at the apex where we're willing to have difficult conversations truly. And I, and I don't, Think of that like 20 years ago when we were 10 years old or eight years old. I, I don't remember those conversations really happening. And I think what's so what makes me optimistic is, you know, we're willing to now see that there's not just one narrative. Like we we do, you know, we our strength is our diversity, our, our diversity of thought, what we bring to the table, like who we are as people. That is yeah. really our strength. And so I think like thinking of ways in which we value that in our kids is very exciting. Like when people are naming, you know, as white educators, they're like, you know, I understand that our country has been built on things that weren't the best for people of color, but I am so vested in this and I'm going to work with you. I think that's really exciting. And um, the only way you're going to grow and change is to be uncomfortable. If you're comfortable all the time, that just means that you are at status quo. Um, And so I really appreciate moments where I'm faced in my discomfort because then I can be like, okay, why did this make me uncomfortable? And how can I 
fix the way I'm looking at it or fix the way that I perceiving the situation to, to kind of dig at that piece a little bit more. Yeah, that's right. Is like pushing yourself to say, understand going the why, like, why am I feeling like this? And can it, and, 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 you know, the diagnose it to the, the core issue and then how can I resolve it? Or at least, you know, have a conversation about it. That is wonderful. Wow, Sana, this has been great. Let, let's uh, switch to our rapid fire questions. And again, these are our questions we ask all our audience members. And I'm very, very excited to see uh, what you have to say. So first question for you, um, is, is there an item that you've bought recently, item or service that you've bought recently that has dramatically improved your life? An Eero, actually. Um, so. Eero. Yeah, it's been a recent, uh, it was a recent impulse buy. I'm I'm not the most tech savvy person in the world, but I do know that in remote learning or Zoom calls, you need to have really good Wi-Fi. So we we live in kind of the middle of nowhere. We live in the country in Connecticut. So having strong Wi-Fi is clutch and uh, we really needed that to survive. So I feel good about that impulse buy. Like we have... Wi-Fi signals. And I think it's been really practically helpful the last several weeks. I 100% agree. It's like everything is now through your internet. So you got to make that as, as souped up as possible because, you know, who knows when we'll be seeing people, you know, in person. This is this is the best we can do. Um, that's great. That's a great one. Um, okay. This question is very interesting. When you think of a South Asian person you look up to in your field, who would you say comes to mind and why? So this is a bit um, this is a bit emotional, but the only woman that ever looked like me in education was my professor at Berkeley. Her name was Dr. Kiran Chaudhary, and she she was an expert. She was such an interesting Desi woman. She was high, she was a hybrid of two different worlds. Um, grew up in Pakistan, born and raised in Pakistan. Actually, came to America. Um, she actually cleaned bathrooms. Then ended up getting her PhD at Harvard, becoming a tenured professor at Berkeley. And that's how our paths crossed. And um, she was just magical, just kind of like a spitfire would say exactly what she wanted to say. This is the power of tenure, right? You can <laughs> say. Sure, sure. So uh, yeah, she was really amazing. And I, you know, she really stands out to me as my, my hero, so to speak. Um, it's, it's a little emotional in the sense that I emailed her a few months ago you know, asking her, you know, how she's doing, uh, just kind of giving her a little update on life. Uh, and so she never responded, which I thought was odds when I looked her up, she actually passed away earlier. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I was so sorry too. It, it was just kind of a freak thing. She was very young. She was very, very young and she passed away from a heart attack. So um, that kind of moment really kind of froze me a bit because, you know, uh, really taking the time to tell people that, that they value, that they're valued and you love them, I think is just so important. So yeah, that really made me think about. And it, it, and it makes you think about the fragility of life of like, hey, you know, to our earlier point that like you could be so focused on success or your version of success and boom, things happen that change your life completely in a good way, serendipitous way, like it's happened in your life or in a way that, you know, you may not expect. So I think that is such a sobering reminder of, of of where we are in life, especially with a pandemic going on and what's really important to you. So um, thank you for sharing that. Um, before we go to some of the other questions, I, th- I think Mira has a question that, uh, that that she wants to ask. I'd love for, for her to ask it to you. Hi, um, I just want to say this interview has been so great to listen um, into. It's my first time. So I'm like really enjoying this. I mean, everything you said, I've just like really hit home on, but I was wondering, um, I'm taking a narrative audio class this semester. And so we basically listen to a podcast like every week. Um, and a few weeks ago, we listened, I don't know if you've heard the podcast, This American Life. Um, but they did um, a series on um, desegregation in schools. And I thought it was really interesting because I didn't even know that problem was even a thing. I don't know, like I assume like, you know, segregation has been over for so long. I didn't still think like that was something common in schools. I was just wondering if you've done any like policy work on that or have any experience working in that. Absolutely. That's like a huge issue, actually. Um, It's interesting because when it comes to Connecticut, Connecticut has one of the highest opportunity gaps in the country. So the achievement between Black and Latinx students and white students, you think when you think of Connecticut that it's such a wealthy state, Mm -hmm. 
so much of that wealth is disproportionately in some of the highest um, monetary zip codes. So all the zip codes close to New York, right? Like there's Fairfield, Darien, um, Weston, Westport. Not to say that they don't have students of color, but it's disproportionately white. And then go into cities like Hartford or Bridgeport or New Haven, and it's disproportionately black or brown and kids aren't succeeding. And so this policy issue is something that I've like really studied and researched over the last decade. Like I've worked in schools who've experienced that. It's a, it's kind of like a perfect storm in the, in the, in the worst proverbial sense, because it's just years and years and years of neglect and years and years of gentrification where, you know, white folks who are wealthy have moved to the suburbs in better schools. And then we look at numbers and then we blame the kids for having low test scores when we don't kind of acknowledge that there's like this history of race that has played a huge component in that. Like it, it's not a, it's not just uh, an accident that all of the wealthier affluent suburbs are white and all of the struggling suburb or communities are of color. Like it is a purposeful creation. Um, so Mira, thank you so much for the question and acknowledging that you're learning. I think we all are in, in many ways, but I think that I guess the, the best thing to end my answer is nothing in the United States is created by accident. Everything is, is meant for a reason. So if you're seeing patterns and things that don't seem right, there probably is a reason why those exist. Got it. That's great. Thank you. That's, that's, that's a wonderful answer. Um, Okay, so these these questions are 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 our last few and and some of my favorite. Um, is there a movie or book, Sana, that has had the most impact on you that you can share? So um, the book actually that had the most impact on me was the Immortal Life of Hen- Henrietta Lacks. Um, Samir, have you ever read it? I've never read it, but I've heard of it. I've heard of it. It's powerful. It is a powerful book. Um, it really kind of hit home for me because at the time I read it when I was in Baltimore and the woman who is the protagonist uh, grew up in Baltimore. So ultimately this book is really powerful because um, this woman had cancer, Henrietta, and her um, cancer cells were utilized for scientific discoveries and studies. Um, and it actually led to amazing scientific innovations and breakthroughs. But but like, she never was asked, right? Like whether her cells could be used. So this entire book chronicles a contemporary lens of one of our family members. I believe it's what it's her daughter trying to get insight and feedback as to why that happened. Um, and just kind of like searching for clues about her mother, uh, it's just really beautiful and thought provoking. And it's, it just shows you that history is just not in the past. It's like all around us. And, you know, it's a really powerful book. I would highly recommend it. Awesome. Yeah. We will definitely link, link to that. Uh, thank you for sharing that. That's great. Okay. Um, so wh- this is a, this is a question I always enjoy hearing pe- people's response because it's so personal. So um, what advice would you give an up and coming South Asian person who's listening to this interview who's interested in education, who may be getting pushback from their parents or their family, what advice would you give them and why? That's a hard question, right? It's a hard question because the headspace I'm currently at at 31 is very different than I was at at 21 and in in that exact same space. But I think that my advice would be to follow your passion, to follow your passion and purpose, but to also know why you're following it. So I think that pushing yourself to think through, like, why do you want to go in education? Where do you see yourself? Like, how are you willing to make a difference? I think are really important questions to reflect on. Um, I do want to add a bit of an addendum earlier, you know, when we were talking about DC culture and success, right? And I think sometimes we do things because we are told that we will get some sort of joy or catharsis or completion when we get it. I think for me, anecdotally, that was when I was finishing my doctorate. So I spent 24 years in school. I thought all of a sudden I would become a doctor, finish this journey and feel different all of a sudden. And I felt yeah. the same. Yeah. There was, there was nothing like I just, you know, I'm the same Sana. I'm the same Sana who's awkward. You know, I'm the same Sana, <laughs> right? I'm the same Sana who likes cupcakes. Like, like nothing has fundamentally shifted about sure. who I am. Sure. And so I think that, you know, 
the kind of circling back to the advice I would give, you know, don't think that anything is going to be more of a completion. Like you are not going to be completed from getting that career that you want in education. Um, I think that you should focus on this as a journey and like constant growth um, and thinking through like how it fits into the larger puzzle of who you are as a person. That's great. Yeah. Cause I think, um, you know, starting to where we, we, we are wrapping up or where we started is identity and figuring out how this part is part of your identity and, um, you know, hearing your story and, and other stories and, and, and seeing that, Hey, this is possible for me. Like this is something that, that I, I can do and exploring it. And, and I feel what you said about serendipitous moments. Like if you put it out into the universe, like it's, it somehow will, 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 will manifest in itself in, in the right way. So thank you for sharing that. That, that, that's wonderful. Okay, before we close, any final ask for the audience? Anything you'd like to leave them with? Yeah, I think that there's one thing that I that your that our conversation has made me really think about, and I really want to name for especially younger Daisies going honestly any field. Like I, the last decade, I've been in research and policy, operations, education, and I think that what our community really should continue focusing on is building relationships with people who are in the space in the field. A lot of this work is relational because all of these serendipitous moments I had was because of a relationship. Like it was a friend, a colleague, a former boss, like, you know, someone who recommended me, who thought about me. And, you know, oftentimes we think, you know, if we work hard, we're going to get X, but sometimes it really is about people capturing your story and bringing it up to life, you know, and, and we are all, connected in so many ways. I know Samir, you probably, you and I are probably connected somehow because that is just the nature of the Daisy community. So, you know, as we're kind of like hopping off the call and thinking through all of these different pieces, you know, I definitely will push like, you know, you never know where you're going to be, but so much of it is because of, you know, of course who you are, your fate, if the stars are aligned, but relationships are key. So make sure that you continue to cultivate them wherever you go. Perfect. Perfect. That is incredible way to way to end this. Um, if people want to learn more, Sana, where can they find you or, or how can they get in touch? Absolutely. I use LinkedIn for my professional kind of correspondences. So um, if they want to find me there, I'm more than welcome to be a resource or support in any way. So many people have lifted me up in my journey. So if I can support someone, I would be absolutely happy to. Excellent. And we'll put all those links in, in the post as well. All right, Sana. Dr. Sheikh, thank you so much um, for for everything you do and and uh, you know making the strides that our community needs and honestly the the the, the country needs in, in, in this such an important space. So thank you so much for being on South Asian Stories. We truly appreciate it. Samir, I just want to take a moment to thank you because I think that you are doing really great work. Like I think the fact that you do this, like you deserve major kudos because you know our voices are super important and you're making it happen so major kudos right back to you thank you so much if you'd like to hear more amazing stories on south asians around the world please check out south asian stories podcast.com and subscribe to our email list that's south asian stories podcast.com thanks a lot and see you next time